Good morning. It's good to see you all. Our text this morning is on Genesis 21. It's verse uh, 1 to 14. If you're familiar with this text, you'll know that it's a theological gold mine, right? Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul uh, mines Genesis a lot, but he mines Genesis 21. We read some of that earlier when we read, uh, had our shared scripture reading together. So there's all this deep theological depth there that Paul pulls out in terms of, when he's writing this letter to his friends of Galatia, telling them this major difference between uh, the law and the grace of God. He's urging his friends. There are other great theological nuggets within Genesis, but in Genesis 21 as well. And my hope this morning is that we're able to dig up some of these other nuggets uh, that speak actually maybe a little more personally. Uh, you know, sometimes getting into the theological weeds can uh, be, uh, well, a way that keeps the text sort of at arm's length a little bit. Uh, if you've been around theologians, you know, sometimes they can do that sort of thing. But I think Genesis 21 actually uh, provides something very specific uh, that speaks into our lives as we think about what it means to walk with God uh, in a transition. Uh, Adam, uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah, you'll remember, they, uh, they were called by God when they were 75 and 65, called to leave everything that they'd ever known to something that they didn't know. Uh, and all they had to go on was God's word. And what they learned over and over again is that God was faithful to his promises, even when they weren't. There's something that we can learn from Abraham and Sarah as God is calling us from something that we've known for a long time to something that we're not sure of yet. We have COVID to thank for that in some ways. Uh, we have culture and society. We also have transitioned in this church to, uh, to sort of thank for that as we step into that. But yet there are these promises of God that he, like he promised Abraham and Sarah, is going to bless the world through them with the coming of Jesus. He has every intention, I believe, to continue to bless the world and Durham through you as you make Jesus known. And so we want to look into this text with that in mind. So let me turn to Genesis chapter 21. I'll read from verse 1 to 14. You can read it in your pew Bible if you like. Uh, I do read from the ESV, so it might be a little different. So let me read it for us. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Yet I will make a nation to the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I ask that by your spirit and because of your son, you would do a great work in us. That our hearts would be open to what you would have us to hear. That nothing I would say or do or have done or left unsaid or undone would in any way at all hinder the work of your spirit. That we would see Jesus in this text. That by your spirit, our lives would be transformed. I ask this, Lord, in the awesome and marvelous and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, jumping from uh, Genesis 16 to 21 might be a little bit of a whiplash, uh, jumping that far ahead. But the reality is, is that Genesis 16, which Dave did a great job of walking us through last week, uh, and 21 go hand in glove. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, I believe, this important nugget within the connection of these two chapters that I think will speak into our lives. And so let me see if I can connect the dots between Genesis 16, which we looked at last week, and 21, which, we, which I just read. Uh, Genesis 16 is this really uncomfortable text. It's that text where uh, it seems very clear that Sarah has um, lost faith, basically, in God's promises to them and decides to take a page out of the culture's handbook in order to help God along which is really um, never a great idea, uh, as it can lead to all kinds of things and tensions and conflicts that also people get hurt and that sort of thing. You'll remember back in Genesis 12, perhaps, that God called Abraham and Sarah from everything that they knew, and he gave them these promises because God was going to use their lives to bless the world with the eventual coming of the Messiah. And so he gave them these promises, right? He promised that he would give them a land, and he promised that he would make them a great name and a great nation, meaning he would, he would make them a family and a tribe. And he also promised to bless them so that they would flourish in the land that he's giving them. He, they would flourish as people and that he would bless them, but he would also dishonor those who dishonor them, right? And so we read that. We get that in our head, this sort of picture. But in Genesis 16, it seems like Sarah is feeling this pressure because she hasn't been able to have a child with Abraham and they're getting older. Remember, this whole thing starts off when she is 65 and he is 75. And time has expanded and now they're years down the road. In Genesis 16, we read this. This is what Sarah says to Abram in this text. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing a child. So in some ways, in Genesis 16, she's stressed, right? You can kind of get that. Like she has this feeling that God has, God has closed her womb and he's preventing her from having a child. There's some truth in that. It's not the final word because God has this plan that it's through them. And he's going to do it in such a way that when she does have a child, it is very clear that God's hand is in the midst of this, right? God is going to get the glory in this sense because it is his plan and his purpose to use this couple in order to bless the world. But she's stepping in and she's going to do what she can to help God's plan along. Um, And Abram goes along with it. It's never a good idea, right? And the person who gets hurt here is Hagar. Um, and it creates some tension and conflict within Abraham's house. And in those days, if a, a wife couldn't have a child, she would often take uh, a slave woman or a handmaiden and give her to her husband 
uh, they would hopefully have a child together, and then the child was raised as the wife's. Usually, that's how it worked. That seems to be Sarah's plan in Genesis 16. It's a terrible idea, as Dave pointed out last week. Even though it was, even though it was an idea, it was a bad idea. They shouldn't have done it, right? Uh, that's part of the story here. And one of the things that, that doesn't seem to factor into their equation is Hagar and how she might um, deal with this. We know of Hagar's story a little bit. If you go back, we, there's some suspicion that in the bride price that comes out when, in Genesis 12, when, uh, when, again, Abraham and Sarah decide to help God's plan along as a famine in the land, so they sojourn in Egypt. They have all this, uh, this upheaval with Pharaoh, and all of a sudden the Pharaoh tells them to get out, but he gives them all these great things. Part of what he gives them besides, you know, livestock and gold, he gives them people. Uh, and they're so Egyptian slaves. Later we read about Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and so we can make those connections. Um, and so Sarah has this plan to give her Egyptian slave, Hagar, to Abram. It's a terrible idea. And it really makes me think about um, the last few years I've taught a class at King University, and part of that class we read about um, Frederick Douglass. I don't know if you've read any of uh, Frederick Douglass's work, but it is, uh, I give a, I tell my class before we start, this is hard to read. Because one of the things that we read about slavery in the United States uh, is that how dehumanizing it was. They're, they had no agency. Uh, and the horrible things that were often done to women as slaves. Uh, and Hagar makes me think about that. She has no agency in this moment. Next Sunday uh, is June 19th. It's Juneteenth. Um, if you're not familiar with Juneteenth, it's one of the longest traditions uh, in American history where we celebrate the full emancipation of, of American slaves. And it's an important day in the life of the church and also in the life of our country. And so hopefully this week you'll hear some things from us, from the church, from the Jesus Race and the Jesus Race and the Church Committee. They'll send something out perhaps and It'll be mentioned next Sunday as well. It's an important day for the church. But I can't think of Hagar without thinking about the, the dehumanizing part of what it meant to be a slave, even in those days, and this lack of agency. I can't imagine that she had any say in this thing that Sarah and, uh, and Abraham are planning to do as they try to help God's, God's plan out, right? They, they want to help God's plans out, but they're not using God's ways, right? And what happens in this moment is... Uh, Hagar gets hurt in the process. And what happens is, sure enough, she spends time with Abraham. She gets pregnant. She's going to have a child. And as soon as that happens, she has contempt for Sarah. There could be lots of ways in order to understand that concept of contempt, right? Um, like, why does she have contempt for Sarah? It, whatever it was, however that relationship sort of plays out, Sarah doesn't like it, as you would suspect. None of us like to be treated with contempt, especially when she feels like uh, she is uh, Hagar's better and so she snaps, really, I think, on Abraham uh, at this moment. And she says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Wait, hold on a second. You were part of this too. Maybe this wrong that she's doing to me, it should be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. I don't know that I would have gone there, but she does. And so she's putting this on Abraham. But she doesn't take any role on her own. She's not owning this, too. And Abram, he says to Sarai in this moment, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. That is the most passive thing I think I've heard in a long time. Well, you didn't have a part in this? 
But he did. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to be with Hagar. And then it says that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar and she fled from her. It was so bad that Hagar becomes a runaway slave. This is horrible. She would rather risk dying of, uh, of, of exhaustion, of heat, uh, of starvation, of thirst, than take this anymore. She's so cruel to her. She flees. And Abram says, okay, whatever. But neither Sarah nor Abraham own anything in this moment. Even though their attempts to help God's plan out in this process, they hurt someone, but they don't own it. I don't think Abraham nor Sarah um, had a very high EQ other in this. Do you? Happens all the time when they try to help God out. People get hurt. And they don't own it. They don't own it at all. But Genesis 16 also shines another light on Sarah for me personally as I read about it. Because she's feeling this pressure the way only a woman could possibly feel in that moment. Um, I've, all, I've always asked Sherry before I tell you this, but uh, get her permission. But for a number of years, we dealt with infertility. That was a really painful, difficult time in our, in our marriage. Um, and people can be, really even well-meaning people can be really insensitive. Uh, even Christian people, like one example is, uh, I was on Young Life staff, we were out at Frontier Ranch and my wife Sherry and I were there. Sherry was in a Bible study, a prayer group with other staff wives and she shared confidentially uh, that she was really struggling. Later that day, she discovered it wasn't so confidential because this strange woman approaches her in the middle of camp with all these kids around, slaps her hand on my wife's belly and says, oh, are you the barren one? Let me pray for you. That was almost, that was like well over 20 years ago, and she's still mad about it. And if I ever met this woman, I'd be furious. I mean, seriously, right? So I'm thinking, so I read about Sarah in a sort of different light, as I, I can kind of understand sort of this pressure that she's feeling. And so, yet at the same time, when she's trying to help God out, it doesn't work, and Hagar is hurt, and there's conflict and tension in this, in this house. I, I believe that because of this connection between 16 and 21. At the end of 16, we read that Ishmael is born uh, and Abraham is, is 86 years old. The very next verse is, is Genesis 17, 1, and it says that he's 99. There's nothing in between, right? It never tells us that there's any resolution between Hagar and Sarah. And then we get to 21, and it's a year later, so now Abraham is 100 years old, and we read what, what, uh, what Sarah has to say in the first few verses, and then what she has to say about Hagar and Ishmael. And it kind of tells me she's still not over this. There's still conflict and tension in this house. She still hasn't owned her own stuff in it, and neither has Abraham, and there, there's stuff going on here. So if you open up and you read these first few verses, you discover that a lot has happened between uh, in these 14 years, between 16 and 21, a lot has happened. I mean, one, you have the, you have the covenant of circumcision where there's this uh, blessing that Paul e- equates with baptism, that sa- circumcision and baptism, the, the covenant of, of grace that's sort of there. We also learn that uh, God not only asked Abraham and Sarah to leave everything, he changes their name. It goes from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah to the father of multitudes and my princess is what Sarah means. We also see that there's this promise that God is going to bless her with a child. 
And a lot has gone on, but I think there's also a lot of pent-up stuff that's happened in those 14 years as well. A lot of stuff, uh, because we know human nature. And it isn't like, by the way, it isn't, it isn't like that Abraham doesn't know how to work for peace. Because if you flip back a few chapters to 13, you'll remember that God had blessed them with all this kind of livestock. And there was this tension, this strife that existed between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And he said, don't let there be any strife among us. Let's work for peace and unity. And there was. And yet, not here. Not between Sarah and Hagar. Not in his own home. He's not done it here. I say that because of the way that Genesis 21 opens up. And here's this connection. Because Genesis 21 opens up and it sounds like this this joyous, wonderful time, right? The first few verses about about between verse 1 and 8, about about three years transpire. And so uh, that's what happens in those first few verses. And, And at first there's like this joyous sort of thing, come and worship with me. But then you get to verse 6 and 7. And you can see this other little piece to it, right? Something that Sarah says here is, is almost like when someone from the South says, bless you, your heart, you know? Like you think they're being nice, but they may be calling you an idiot, right? And so there's a little bit like that here in verse 6 and 7. When Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. She's, that's a play on the name Isaac, which means he laughs. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Everyone will rejoice with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That sounds great until you really start to unpack it and think about what she's actually saying. She's inviting everyone to come and rejoice and worship, which would include Hagar and Ishmael. And she's making mention that she has given birth to the rightful heir of Abraham. Uh, One of my seminary professors, a man named Ken Matthews, made this note about this text. He said, this may be another jab at Hagar and Ishmael, calling them to rejoice over the birth of the rightful heir. No one would have predicted that Sarah could ever nurse a child. And this, too, is another allusion to Hagar, who despises her mistress. There's a dig going on here which might be this evidence that maybe there's still a little bit more going on, a little more conflict and tension that hasn't been resolved, and even Sarah still hasn't owned her part of it. Then they have this party. They're going to celebrate this milestone in the life of Isaac because he's, he's three now, and that was uh, the time that he was weaned, and so they're going to celebrate it. And so you can imagine this huge party. Have you ever been uh, to a family gathering where there is unresolved conflict and tension? My wife likes to say that we put the fun in dysfunctional, uh, and there's some, uh, there's some truth to that. They're having this huge party, and at the party, Ishmael, who's now about 17, uh, mocks or makes fun of Isaac. We don't actually know exactly what that's meant by that. Paul actually refers to it as persecution. Um, Whatever it was, it was bad. A 17-year-old mocking, making fun of a 3-year-old. might have been playful, but it sure didn't feel playful to Sarah, who does not want the rightful heir to be treated with disrespect, the rightful heir to be treated with contempt. And all of a sudden, you can see this tension and conflict bubbling back up, that something hasn't been resolved in this family. She's so upset that in her anger, She basically says, cast out this slave woman, not a handmaiden anymore, cast out this slave woman 
and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. I can't read that without thinking, hmm, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of things that haven't been taken care of. Get rid of them, which is what she's saying. Send them out into the wilderness where they'll die. And she doesn't care. They're nothing at this point. I think that's 17 years of pent-up frustration. And you know what Abraham does? He is um, displeased. What a weak word. And what he's displeased about is not so much Isaac or this threat or whatever. He's displeased because of how it will impact Ishmael. In some ways, he might be uh, hedging his bet, which we'll talk about a little bit next week when we look at Genesis 22. Um, he does love Ishmael. He, he loves him. He's his son. Why wouldn't he? Which adds even more weight to this what happens next, because for about 17 years, it seems like he hasn't done anything to address what clearly seems to be conflict and tension and all that in his own home which means that uh, Ishmael and even Isaac at this point are growing up in this really tense environment. It's no wonder that he is a wild donkey of a man, right? And so there has to be this separation. It's gone on too long. It's too, too deep. There has to be this separation for lots of reasons, theological and otherwise. But, th- but we've come to that. Wouldn't it have been great to have read that Ishmael and Isaac lived at peace with one another? Wouldn't that have been great? But we don't read that. There has to be this separation. God comes in and he comforts Abraham and tells him it's okay to do what Sarah said. I don't think God is maybe condoning her anger, but Isaac is the the child of the promise, the child of the covenant. He's the one through whom God is going to bless the world. It's through him that God is going to bring about the Messiah, which uh, Ishmael and Hagar need as well. God is going to bless the world through Isaac, through his offspring, Jesus, which we just read about a minute ago. That's part of the plan. And there is a threat here to God's covenant promise. And it, and, it, and it has all this to do with it. And later on in Genesis 21, you'll read that God actually takes care of Hagar and Ishmael because he'd made a promise. He made the promise to Hagar and he made the promise to Abraham. And God keeps his promises and he loves Hagar and Ishmael. and He takes care of them in the wilderness, which is one comfort to this text. But the rest of it for me is really troubling especially as it speaks into our lives a little bit as we think about what it means for God to use us to be a blessing to the world by helping them to know who Jesus is. Because there's a lot of unresolved issues and tension between Hagar and Sarah and Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac. For us, in our quest to learn what we can learn from Abraham and Sarah, we have to look deeply at what's happened here. I mean, for one thing, all of this links back to Genesis 12, when they didn't trust God fully and tried to help God's things along without actually using God's purposes and plans. They did it in 16 and well. And what happens in the process of trying to do God's things but not in God's ways is that they hurt people and they don't own it. That's what happens when we try to do God's things but not in God's ways. We hurt people and they didn't own it. We have to own it. And yet... God is still faithful to keep his promises because John 3.16 tells us that God loves the world so much so that nothing was going to stop God from sending Christ into the world because we need a savior. That's what we learn about Abraham and Sarah. They're part of the reason. They're part of this whole thing to understand we need a savior. This is why Jesus came. 
Because we couldn't depend on people to make it happen. God has to do it and he intervenes and he brings. That's the hope that we have. Despite their failures, the promise and blessing of Abraham comes through Jesus. That's the powerful thing. There's a second nugget here too. Abraham and Sarah's actions, not owning it, actually created conflict and tension and they never dealt with it until one day it leads to this really painful separation. They needed to own it and they needed to then work towards resolving this conflict and tension. Abraham goes passive, which a lot of people do. They call it conflict avoidant, but it might just be passivity, right? And it doesn't mean that being conflict avoidant is actually the way to go because, well, people still get hurt and there's still a pain associated with it. And Sarah certainly didn't help either in this whole thing. It's hard to imagine that they could bless the world with that sort of thing hanging around them. But that's where there is hope. Because God was going to bless the world through them anyway. Um, God could even use Abraham and Sarah to bless the world. But see, I, I don't want God to bless the world in spite of me. I want him to bless the world with me. And I think that's often the difference here. It might be time for us to take a close look at our lives, really. As we long to be this um, group of people these individuals that want to bless the world to help others know who Jesus is, right? To think about perhaps um, to identify and confess ways that maybe past unfaithfulness has led to current trouble or caused pain to others and and seek how God can speak into those things and bring healing and restoration. Um, It may be time for us to acknowledge places where there's conflicts and tensions in our families or other parts of our lives so that they don't come to painful separation so that we can see the power of the gospel work through those places and, and be a blessing to the world. But it's tough to make Jesus known when those things are hanging around. God can do it, but we want him to use us, and not in spite of us. Our text is, is one that makes us look at our lives and, and see whether or not our, our actions are, have led to our, our current state of things. It's clear from the Bible that our only hope is in God, that he's going to do this thing. But I'd like to encourage you to Look into your own heart and think about how this sort of speaks in to us as we seek uh, to go where the Lord would have us to go. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that you would use this uh, in our lives to bring transformation. Uh, Use it to help us to know you and to walk with you and to trust in you. I ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.